All right, y'all, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Formation. Um, I'm not normally in here, so it's fun to be with y'all here today. Um, we are going to be doing something a little different. So the last few weeks we've been studying um, and talking about biblical justice. Um, Patrick, in a moment here, is going to give us a quick summary of uh, what we've covered so far. But today we wanted to do something a little different. We wanted you to grill these three and... Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm just kidding. We wanted to ask, uh, give you all an opportunity to ask questions uh, that may have been on your mind the last few weeks or um, something that you just have been wondering for a long time or something you want to push a little bit deeper into today. We have some pre-written questions, but um, in a few minutes here, we're just going to break and give you the, like five to seven minutes to text in a bunch of questions. Uh, and I encourage you to turn to the person to your left and to your right, especially if you don't know them, and, and talk about questions together because... We want to think about this less as you grilling them, which, I mean, it's fair, live your dream, um, but we want to think of this more as uh, biblical justice is uh, a center out thing, that we're all looking at it and trying to figure that out together um, and how to apply that in our lives. So Patrick, would you mind giving a quick overview of what we've covered so far? I think what would be more fun is if one of you could give an overview every week. So do we have any, do we have any volunteers? There might be like a special prize if you could do it. Um, so if not, I'll just, I'll give you a quick synopsis if I can remember it. Um, so if you remember the first week we gathered, we had this, this friend from Memphis, Michael Rhodes, and he talked about justice. I can wait guys. I'll, I'll just pause. Um, we talked about biblical justice in the old Testament. And if you remember, he talked about these two notions of justice and righteousness and how oftentimes our kind of modern Western ears hear very different things than what the Bible is communicating when we think about justice and righteousness. And he talked about the ways that, that God is deeply concerned, rooted in kind of the, our doctrine of creation. God is deeply concerned with ensuring that the world is a just place, especially for the least of these, right? Um, and that Christians, people, the people of God for all time and all places have been called to be concerned with that, to, 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 in whatever sphere that they're able to execute justice um, and righteousness, to pursue righteousness. And the practical things that he um, recommended were basically kind of think about family. Think in terms of family first. View um, your neighbor as your family and then act accordingly. And then he talked about that that would have some necessary implications with regard to um, connections, sharing your Rolodex, sharing your LinkedIn account um, with those people who are, um, are uh, victims, as it were, of unjust decisions or unjust circumstances or whatever. So that was week one. The next week, I talked about, the, kind of continue that story in the New Testament, talked about Jesus' first sermon that he preached in his hometown of Nazareth and talked about that he, he quoted um, Isaiah and this kind of eschatological inbreaking of God's kingdom and what it would look like. And what it would look like is good news being preached to the poor, a release of those who are bound in prison, um, this year of jubilee idea that would be enacted whenever the Messiah came. And that happens, and that's actually what we see in the New Testament, is a fulfillment of the, God's people for the first time, really, empowered by the Holy Spirit, acting justly, living justly in all of their ways. And that's, you know, worked out in the New Testament. And Paul's writing letters to people who are not living justly. And he's saying, hey, you are coming to church, and you're, you're taking communion, and you're robbing people. The rich here are eating more than their sum. They're getting drunk, and they're leaving nothing for the poor for this, like, shared communal meal. And so that's why I do think that as we think about justice, especially economic justice, Michael Rhodes' um, framework of potluck, it being more less a soup kitchen and more potluck, I think is a beautiful image of what we are called to be as the, as the people of God. Um, and then the next week, Matt Lambert gave us some kind of um, ethical framework. Do you want to summarize that? Or do you want me to? Um, 
quite simply, we we tried to establish an ethical system that would bring about um, the best possible framework for justice. How are we going to do justice to our neighbors? And we use the Ten Commandments as that as that framework. It is the best possible ethical system for both justice to our neighbors and human flourishing for all of us if we exhibit the Ten Commandments fully and understand their implications and the implications of any of our sin. All of our sin breaks all Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. Uh, we start to see just how unjust we are and how um, unneighborly we are. And when we try to reverse that, um, the Ten Commandments becomes the system for true justice and true human flourishing. And then Pete... Oh, you want me to go back to Patrick? Oh. Sorry. So, so then the next week, kind of on the heels of Matt, I summarized, this is two weeks ago now, I summarized everything up to that point and talked about that basically living within God's story plus enacting God's commandments would lead us to at least a, a center of God's justice. And so when we think about any um, complex issue that we face, if we think about the story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and kind of ask the hard questions of how it are, how is this issue affected by each of these, right? How is it rooted in creation? How is it affected by the fall? How is Jesus or has Jesus redeemed it? And what's the telos? What's the end of all things whenever Christ returns that we should get close to at least a, a shared conviction of what the, of what Christian justice, biblical justice looks like? And, and, and so God's story, God's commands, um, does this love our neighbor or does this love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and does it love our neighbor as ourselves? So those two things together. And then we talked about the complexities, though, of applying it, right? That even if we could all be on the same page and agree, for, on, for an example like um, nuclear proliferation, if we all say, hey, here's the Christian kind of biblical understanding of nuclear weapons, that the application of that, we may disagree on that, right? Because because policy is difficult. And thinking about what, um, you know, God would call his people to do and where, the, you know, the, where we're heading in the, in um, the New Jerusalem may still dealing with the grappling with the realities of the fall we may end up in different places on the actual policy application but that we can have a shared framework for um, for our understanding of what is just and and then begin leaning into and having good disagreements with with where we just where we um, how we apply those to our neighbors and so then last week our fearless Dean um, talked about politics politics and religion which um, mix really well here uh, yeah, it was actually less scary than I thought it would be, um, thanks to y'all. Y'all smiled at me as I talked, um, which was helpful. Uh, there may have been some self-selection. People might have departed uh, knowing what I was talking about. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of came at more politics, not in particular, uh, any particular political positions or uh, uh, anything like that, but I got at it more from um, how do we as Christians uh, engage politics and government, knowing that it is something that we can and should engage, not avoid and go off into our holy huddle and um, avoid. And so if that's the case, what is essential to that? And I, I kind of boiled it down to two main uh, uh, truths that we need to understand and have right perspective on. That is, first and foremost, uh, where is our citizenship found? And secondly, uh, what is the nature of the kingship of our king? And uh, so getting a kingdom citizenship with a king whose kingdom is not of this world, uh, we don't uh, end up with this sort of zero-sum game approach to politics, red, blue, right, wrong, uh, not just right, wrong, but right and 
so wrong that you're evil if you voted for that person or that way. And we want to move away from uh, being more comfortable with someone who does not share our faith but does share our politics rather than being more comfortable with somebody that we, with whom we share faith but perhaps don't share politics. We've moved into a place where uh, in many instances we are finding ourselves so tribalistic on a political front that we're losing sight of our common citizenship so as, as citizens of the kingdom of God and more importantly I would say siblings of the family of God. So here comes the fun part. We get to let y'all ask them questions. So here's how this is going to work. For the next five to seven minutes, turn to your neighbor or um, turn to someone sitting next to you and think about uh, specific questions for this panel on what justice looks like, what biblical justice looks like. Specifically, think in terms of politics. Think in terms of what else do we talk about? Um, relationships and sexuality. Think in terms of life, bioethics, uh, some like life issues, especially like those three categories of politics, um, relationships, like in sexuality, and then life issues. All right? So for the next five to seven minutes, discuss amongst yourselves, make them hard. You can text them to me, and I'll distill them, and we'll get to ask the panel. All right. Three, two, one, go. All right. Uh, please feel free to keep texting in your questions. The first one, I'm going to toss you all kind of like a general question. You can kind of pick whoever wants to take the lead on this one. Um, Pete, all right. Uh, this is very general, but this is just, uh, what do we owe to the generations that come after us? And specifically, we had a couple questions about um, uh, creation care as well, like in the environment. So what do we owe, um, I think politically, but also um, in terms of like creation care, what do we owe the generations who come after us? Kind of the basic question of politics. Uh, yes, as believers. I'm yes. sure you'll figure out some technology to solve all the problems, and so it'll be fine. Don't worry. Um, I mean, I think this is obvious. Uh, unfortunately, we become so self-centered that, that we, we just uh, consume. And again, it's back to what I was talking about last week in terms of if you think this life is all there is, then you have this notion of I've got to take what I can while I can, and you can do that on the generational level. And... Um, and sort of say, well, we're going to fend for ourselves in this generation. So I think, I think, um, just from you know, even just sort of taking the the Deuteronomy six understanding of passing on the faith, I think there's the same um, call to to pass along uh, the the uh, vocation of being stewards of all things in creation and helping bring about the flourishing of all creation. So that would presuppose that we would leave things uh, as good or better than we found them and that we would be raising up a generation to take on the same um, uh, sort of posture of, of care uh, for all of creation. Um, and if we do otherwise, if we use it up or we tear it up, we're doing two things. We're not only giving them a, a stink bomb of a world to live in, but we're also giving them a stink bomb of a understanding of vocation and an understanding of all things uh, eternal and temporal. Um, so I would suggest that it, it's a no-brainer, um, but yet we, um, yeah, we still play the game um, the way we do as if there's, there's nothing beyond all of this and that there's no sovereign Lord to whom we answer. <laughs> you know, there's that uh, as well. Anybody else want to take a stab at it? Um, well, as a teacher, Tying into that, 
one of the really frustrating things that we've come to notice, or I've come to notice as a teacher, is that our kids, my students, will not, um, they will not sit with a problem until it's solved. They will look at the problem, they see that they can't do it, and then they'll say, what's the answer? And they have no ability to solve any problems. They have no ability to read a text and, and I'm generalizing, of course, and there are always exceptions to the rule, but they don't know how to read a text, interact with it, ask questions about it, and then work their way to a problem, especially um, an ethical issue when it, in, in a scriptural passage. And I feel like one of the things that we are not instilling in the stewardship issue is how do I ask, teaching them to ask real questions that will get to a real solution not just giving them an answer and not just telling them what, how to solve it, but helping them figure out how to solve some future problem or ethical issue or social justice issue or um, some big science question with climate change. They don't know how to sit and solve a problem and they just wanna be told and their phones are, we're doing a disservice with, to them by letting them distract themselves, entertain themselves, and not actually sit with the problem. And it's been very, that's a, um, we have a, we had a, we had a girl at First Baptist who came in from China who knew no English. She did not know one word, and she learned English on the fly. And our students remember her, and I point to her all the time. That's why you will all be working for Soufei. You will all, she will own you, because Chinese students, they, they will sit with a problem for a long time until they actually solve it, and our students are not willing to do that. They will, they just want the answer. And I don't know how many times I've had students, um, they just, they won't even look through their notes. They just say, what's, what's, what's the answer to number six? Um, they won't, they won't really research. Um, and that's, that's, also, that's general. That's not, there are always exceptions to that. But um, the general, we need to teach kids how to think critically and how to ask those deep questions that, about stewardship and what their role is. And we're not, and maybe we're not modeling it, but. Um. Well, yeah, let's go ahead. Uh, and this is kind of tied into that. Speaking of kind of offering, sit, yeah, sitting with problems, how to like figure out a path. Um, here's a quote from a guy named Alastair McIntyre. He said, when offered a choice between two politically intolerable alternatives, it is important to choose neither. Um, he wrote this back in the 2004 US presidential election. Um, and I think it's fair to say that things have gotten even more uh, intolerable since then. Um, so, but the question is, do you agree or disagree with this statement, uh, and why? So like, if, when it comes to this, if there's two politically intolerable alternatives, the only uh, important, it's important to choose neither. Do you agree with that, especially in terms of elections? Yeah, I don't know that I'm gonna answer this question directly, um, but just, just one comment that I, I will say I've noticed, I mean, I think, Someone my age and younger, this is really the only world we know, is world of, of these kind of intolerable um, extremes. And, you know, when I, you know, see old TV clips or hear even um, parents, grandparents talk about old times, you know, I think this is a, a fairly new development, right? The center of American culture was um, much larger, right? There was a, there was a, a very clear kind of um, dominant ethos to the culture. And so this breakdown has been significant and has, um, you know, brought to bear all of these issues that probably have been, been here all along. But I guess one, one thing that I think weighs in for me on this discussion is... America is not the kingdom of God. 
and I think that there has been a tendency in Americans, um, maybe probably throughout our history, to to view ourselves, and maybe go back to the Puritans, right? To view ourselves as this city on a hill, this kind of sacred place. And I want and, and I want to kind of couch that by saying that clearly there is there are so many incredible things about this country, and we do have a heritage, and we have have had many godly leaders who have pursued a particular kind of justice. Um, so I think on one side there's a ten- temptation maybe to um, to deify. Um, the kingdom of this world, or America in particular, um, and and that that kind of filters down in every every regard, right? So that that voting is viewed as this kind of sacramental act, like it's this very sacred, you know, cherished thing. And so I think on one side we have to say we have to maybe push back against that and say that even even engaging our in our in in our in politics is something that that Christians really throughout our history have chosen to remove themselves from, right? There's a whole stream, the Anabaptist stream of people do disengage because they believe that the politics of this world are so corrosive to the kingdom of God that they actually abstain from those systems. And and I think it's just, you know, there, there's a valid argument to make. I'm not advocating for that in, in, clearly because I, I agree more where, where what Pete said. I think we do, we have a responsibility for the sake of loving our neighbor to engage. But then on the other side, the other extreme, I think there's a tendency, especially among more progressive Christians, um, to 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 do just that to say that the entire system is completely broken. Everything America's done has been, you know, just tarnished and and nothing but injustice. And they would simply, you know, um, vilify um, anyone who disagrees with that too. So I think I guess I would just say there's a there's a temptation on both sides. So I do think you can make a Christian case for not choosing, or or maybe to to spend the effort that you would in you know holding your nose and voting on actually local things that can make a real difference. So I think, I think it's maybe a shift in emphasis. I think there may be a time to choose neither of a terrible alternative, but, but it doesn't mean that you can simply just check out. Um, you have to find ways to love your neighbor through political means. Um, but I do think, as we, you know, and people have said this, but we are certainly um, consumed with the presidential office, right? I mean, that's the only thing that we're concerned about, where the things that actually affect us most and our neighbors are much more local, right? They're much more close to home. Clearly, they, there are ramifications. Of, of who's in the highest office um, across the board, but I do think that we can maybe shift our focus and our emphasis away from that and not be distracted by it as much. So. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Um, uh, so this one's just kind of, again, a bit more uh, broad, but what is a practical path uh, that affirms both social, social justice and gospel proclamation look like, uh, and what obstacles may stand in that path? Um, and specifically, when you, uh, one of our uh, texted in question was, how do we not judge those who are not engaged? Um, so how do we keep Keep from becoming Pharisees, even when we see other Christians who, who don't, or who uh, maybe fall into only one side of that, uh, the ditch of either only doing social justice or only doing gospel proclamation. How do we remain humble even in seeking to find a middle path between those six streams? I'll just start, and I'll try to keep it really quick, and then I'll pass it along to these guys. But I would say that um, the reason that we should pursue both. And what I think we, I hope we've learned in this class is that it's not a true gospel unless it is about both salvation and social justice, right? Justice is the whole world, is everything. It is us going to heaven, but it's also about the restoration of all things as God intended. So I do think to preach the full gospel, we we must have both of these things involved. And so, and in terms of judging, I mean, I honestly... Peter says, let judgment begin with the house of God. So I do think we probably need to be judged. If we if we forsake the gospel of salvation and justification by faith to just preach 
um, a gospel of social justice, where ultimately that's going to run on fumes, right? It's going to run out of run out of steam, and that, and every every justice um, pursuit in history that's not rooted in the Christian gospel, I think, has done that. But then on the other side, if we become so consumed with simply just converting souls, saving souls, that we lose um, any you know engagement in trying to make this world as God intended it, I think we're failing. And so I think I think maybe we actually can call each other justice, and we should be committed to that, right? And so we should start with ourselves, right? Judgment begins with me. Why? How am I not faithfully doing this? And then with us, how are we not doing this before it's, how's this church on the other side of town doing it? So I think just thinking in circles, but as a, as a national kind of evangelical church, we probably should judge and be judged. So I think the big obstacle to that path of, of balance and holistic uh, social justice and gospel proclamation is the way in which we preach the gospel, which is so can become such a pie-in-the-sky-when-we-die message that all we're helping people um, achieve or, or have is the golden ticket to heaven. And so we put this big uh, wall up between this world and the next and this big chasm between those who've gone on and those who are here. And, and any of that will, I think, cause us to um, kind of fall into almost like a Gnostic. Uh, uh, this world is just so gross and we just need to get out of here. Um, and good thing we've got our golden ticket. And so we lose compassion. We lose a, a sense of hope and in in, in a sense of that actually when somebody is converted, it begins right now and the kingdom of God is at hand and we're beginning. So it's, it's what you're talking about. The, but, but it's a mental thing of like, what is this gospel that we're preaching? Is it just, you know, the, the golden ticket? Because if so, and the other thing that happens very often when some people get the golden ticket and then become kind of hedonistic, like, you know, it doesn't matter what I do, you know, and they become antinomian is the fancy theological word of like, I've got it all sorted because, you know, Christ is my righteousness and so I can be unrighteous and he'll cover up all my, and Paul addresses that. So I think it's making sure we preach a right gospel of yes, eternal life beginning now. And again, it's, it's not just salvation. We make this real clear in our baptismal covenant of its savior and Lord, and so you're following him as Lord now, and there is a life that needs to be led in obedience to your king, which looks like his life, which was this Isaiah, uh, you know, uh, restoration of of justice and and mercy and and laying down our lives for our friends and all that sort of thing. So that that would be one other. Uh, Whoever wants to start with this one. uh, what, <laughs> what does the church, uh, what does the church owe to our LGBTQ uh, or our same-sex attracted neighbors? And we had a texting question specifically about um, our married uh, LGBT friend. Well, I would, un- I mean, I would say we owe them the same thing that we owe our hetero-attracted members: a better understanding of what sex is and isn't. Um, we don't, we haven't, this has been a topic that the church has been scared of, and when it does speak about it, it's like um, really quick and uh, off-putting. Um, there have been a couple of denominational statements that have been put out, not necessarily by ACNA, but, um, you know, uh, there there's a statement called the Nashville Statement, which I th- which was put out recently. I thought it was really unhelpful and it didn't really it wasn't loving it wasn't kind and 
we would, we would, I think we need a deeper discipleship about what, um, wh- how God used sex in the Bible, how God um, told, it's part of the covenant with Adam, with Noah. Um, they, and we haven't really, um, we've been so scared of the topic that we've let the culture inform it rather than the church. And we've let the culture um, drive home a couple of assumptions about it that we haven't been very good at answering. Um, sex is not a need. It's a want. Um, you don't, it's not your identity. It's not all that you are. It's not, that's not the primary thing about you. Um, and there, it, it, there's so much more to you, but there also is a real important component about it in, in the mission of God and the development of the church. And um, so I don't know, I think we need, a, we need a deeper discipleship about what it is and isn't and, um, uh, and how, to, um, how to talk about it. We're pretty, pretty scared of it. And I think the first, the church needs to you know, repent and not be so scared of it and talk about it and be more loving and, and kind and, and also talk about, the, uh, dis- openly discuss, um, not be so afraid to discuss how Jesus talked about it. Um, I think there's a, a real need for us to be clear, I think, sometimes uh, on, because we're afraid of it, um, there are those that are just too blunt and they try to deal with this very, very um, complicated and um, overwhelming topic. And because I think it feels as though there's a tsunami of cultural, you know, kind of assumption and um, they've won the day, it's over, you know, that kind of thing, that ship has sailed, that, that people kind of become real defensive and they become real blunt. But I think the bigger group tends to be a little cagey and evasive and kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth and, and people kind of get caught off guard and it becomes a bait and switch kind of thing. So I think it's important to be really clear on where we stand on some of these issues uh, and, and doing it on the, the sort of macro level of creation and anthropology and um, place of sex, righteous place of sex in the human condition, um, but then also getting really clear on what is marriage and, and, and there's so much that needs to be spoken to in terms of that. I think one of the things that I've discovered in some ways by moving up here to the cathedral church and living in an urban kind of context is that I benefited, uh, benefited, I guess, from a more kind of uh, um, monochrome and mono-focused kind of environment most of my life where I could be more blunt about stuff because basically it was always with the choir. You know, I was always with the choir. And so we were like, we believe this, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. We're all, it was kind of, you know, that kind of thing. And you come here and there's so many perspectives and so many backgrounds and so many experiences and... And, and couple that with the, the progression of, of the way that we've addressed this issue culturally, and you just have to be very subtle. You have to think in terms of surgery with a scalpel, not demo with a sledgehammer. And, um, and so that is a work, and uh, we have to think deeply about these things and, complex, and be patient and have the long view of how we're gonna engage people uh, that are dealing with these things and recognize how deeply hurtful things have been in the church for so many folks in the LGBTQ community um, and own that and, and apologize for aspects of that without losing 
integrity in our position. And I think that's doable. It's hard. A lot of times you're not given that that opportunity by those on, because again, they're just sort of like, either you love me this way or you don't love me and they take off and that happens. But I'm finding more and more as I've engaged this more and more over time that, that I am getting that opportunity in, in a lot of instances to just keep the conversation going and um, and continuing to learn and, 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 and even look at my own assumptions in the ways that I've, I've addressed these things um, in more of a kind of black and white, very clear, clunky way um, and getting more to the subtlety and nuance and, and the various, you know, like there's no homosexuality, it's homosexualities and it's usually down to the individual and there's stories and there's people and these things and so you've got to get into all that stuff and it takes forever and it's hard and it's long and it's messy and it's, you know, all of that and we have to be willing to do that, every one of us, I mean, and, um, but have this anchor of truth of here's what marriage is, here's where sex fits, here's who God has made us to be. Um, and I think we can do it. It's just it's just harder. So is it safe to summarize? And I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong. But like the we need to have this like deep biblical clarity with regard to sexuality, which which definitely is with regard to LGBTQ people, um, but also just for hetero people, right? To have like we need to be we need clarity on ourselves on what sex is for, right? And what our, what bodies are for, and we also need to kind of couple that with a hospitality, Christian hospitality. Um, seeking to welcome people and recognize that we're all in the midst of transformation and that we're all. Yeah. Yes, everyone's assumptions need to be challenged. My, mm. my students in school, they have these assumptions. Sex is a need, not a want. Um, if it's a need, I can take it. They have this, it's a right, I get it, and somebody owes it to me, right? And then, then you... Um, and those assumptions need to be challenged no matter who you are or what your sexuality is. All right, this is a, uh, a texted in question. Um, how, uh, what do we, how do we approach um, a recreational use of marijuana, even medical marijuana? Um, yeah. Yeah, because it, it, like, for example, like, um, you can, there's, uh, you know, they can, uh, I can't remember all, how all that works, but like, I mean, people who grow it at home, you know, like that's home growers, like that's different than like people who buy it from even dispensaries and things like that. And there's like legitimate arguments. I'm from Colorado, so I know more about this than I care to admit. Um, I miss when we weren't just the pot state, but, uh, but, I, but it, is, it is an issue or it is a reality that's becoming more and more prevalent. So how do we approach that? How do we, without being again, Pharisees or, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I, I, this is a great question. We don't, there's some science about it. Um, I'm going to have to address it this year with my ethics classes because my students assume that it's uh, have smoking marijuana is the same as having a beer, and many of them there are get it from their parents, um, and they don't. Uh, they don't get marijuana from their parents. They're supplied it. Um, and I should. I, I, okay. Yeah. I shouldn't say many. That's true. It's some, but that attitude. Sorry, I, and I am speaking. I, I do. I, I do speak in hyperbole. But that attitude is pervasive, hmm. and is it's just like having a beer, and it doesn't really affect me. And the science about that is coming in fast and furious, and it, it's it's easily refuted. Um, and you can get a lot of information about it, even from professional sports leagues who use it as um, pain management 
Um, but then they have lots of other, there are lots of other things that are associated with it, lack of ambition and, you know, lack of willingness to then um, to, you know, do other things. So I don't, I, this is a big topic that we're going to have to get a cogent answer to. Mm -hmm. There is quite a bit of science. It's not just like having a beer. There are a couple of great articles on desiringgod.org, John Piper's website. Some, um, there's this uh, pastor in Oregon who admitted, you know, he's like, this is full confession. I was an avid marijuana user, and here's here's what it here's how I used it, and here's where I was wrong. And um, it's not just like having wine. Wine in the Bible does something completely different than marijuana in in your living room. Um, and he exp and he explains he explains the covenantal use of wine and why it's different. Um, and I can't remember his name, but if you look up desiringgod.org and and marijuana use, you can find some pretty interesting articles on it. I would say also we need to do with this what we do with this question that's on the screen is we need to be having wider conversations around addiction and substance use. Uh, why do we drink wine? What are we? How much wine are we drinking? Um, why do we eat sugar and you know other addictions that we have, pain uh, um, management that we use, um, and we do that constantly. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there's a big question around that. I mean, right now, for us, it's an easy one. It's illegal, so you don't do it. You know, you honor the authority that's over you. And now, if we're in Colorado, it's a, a tougher conversation. Um, I think we need to be ready for uh, whether these things happen. And there's also subtleties, right? Like, what does marijuana do in an adolescent developing brain versus an adult brain? It's different. It's very different. And what is it, uh, what is it when you have CBD, which doesn't have the getting high thing, but it's a pain. We should ask the chemist to tell us what's going on with all of this. I, he's over there smiling like he knows something that I don't know. This was your question, wasn't it, Tim? Um, but, but I do think, yeah, don't yeah. vape. De definitely don't vape. We can uh, all agree on that. That is not cool. a good That's look. Good. Uh, yeah, um, but I just think, I think so much of this, again, we get to this attitude of right. This is my right, and it's, it's uh, a need, or it's, it's, you know, we've 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 thought liberty equals is found in getting to do whatever we want, and we've lost sight of that. That's actually the real bondage, like having some measure of boundary and law, according to God's word, actually is what gives us true freedom. And and just ask the wake and bake addict who cannot get off marijuana, how much freedom does he feel, even if it's now legal in his state. Uh, or her state, right? It's it's so that's the real question to me. Hmm. All right. Um, so this is a, an interesting one. Um, are family values and kingdom justice the same thing? If not, how do they differ? Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, I was raised on family values, guys. Um, my yeah. parents, you know, I was raised in the 80s and early 90s, and that's kind of when this whole religious right movement um, emerged. And t you know, talk radio was a big thing, and it was Dr. Dobson and all these, all these folks. And so I heard a lot about it. And um, you know, I, I anecdotally, a lot of the people who were most deeply committed to it were the people who um, ended up, for various reasons, not one reason, but ended up having a lot of really bad fruit in their life, <laughs> bad fruit in their marriages, marriages that fell apart, kids that, yeah, go. Ahead. Well, I think that's maybe the thing, right? It's become kind of a shibboleth, shibboleth, shibboleth whatever it is, um, for, for a particular version of kind of a, what 
American an American family looks like, right? So, and, and a lot of times it's kind of it's um, leave it to Beaver. It's like 1950s, like you know, husband husband is brings some of the bacon, you know, wife's at home making the perfect house, and you know, 2.5 kids, and all you know, white picket fence, all of that kind of that's so become became so um, deeply ingrained with um, the Christian faith, and it, it once it was perceived to be under attack, right? That's whenever you have the emergence of the religious right um, to kind of take back family values. So, of course, you know, the Christian story is very pro-family, right? God seems to work, God seems to really love families and work in families and be committed to families, you know, so, you know, Pete quoted Deuteronomy 6, to, to raise our families in the faith, you know, to talk about God's work on our behalf as we walk in the way, as we, you know, rise up in the morning, as we sit at our tables and share meals and all that. So, so clearly it's, that's right, clearly, that's right. So I think, I think, we definitely want need to separate and the, the, that particular kind of association with family values because it's clearly not the same as the kingdom of God. But there is significant overlap. God has made us into a new family. Um, he's invited us to be a part of His family. And 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 in some ways, I think it's it's um, it's not that the family value system is 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 too expansive. It's that it's too limiting, mm-hmm. right? It's that it's very narrow understanding of what family is. And I think you know we're learning at the cathedral what it means to be the family of God. And clearly, there's a deep connection with justice, right? For us to fully be God's people, we have to lean into these issues of kingdom justice. And so I think um, I think some of us are going to look like quote-unquote family values. Some of us are still going to have somewhat of kind of a, you know, that leave it to beaver thing. And that's not wrong. But if we view ourselves as exclusively that, as that being kind of what the kingdom of God is, then we're going to be missing out on what God has truly called us to do. So to be kingdom values are actually about God's family living in the world as God intended. Um, so anyway. Thanks, Patrick. Um, we're going to do a bit of a speed round real quick. Uh, just and These are ideally one word or one sentence answers uh, for the next couple um, here. Um, Have you, do you, that's like literally impossible for anybody that speaks to people to do that. So. I know, and that's why I'm... I figure, I figure with that I'll get like one paragraph, and that's okay. Um, what are the biggest idols keeping American Christians from seeking kingdom justice? Safety. Mm. Thou shalt be safe, the 11th commandment. That was a word in one sentence, so Matt's already over. All right, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, please, yeah. Yeah. I would just say it's a it's a tie for comfort and prosperity, you know, keeping and that's what safe that's what we think makes us safe. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I will say politics as well on both sides, both 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 progressive and conservative politics. Hmm. Awesome, that's right. Um, what does uh, sanctity of life mean, and why does it matter? This is hard. This isn't a good speed round one. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, if one of y'all could explain perhaps like what, well, like a Christian approach to sanctity of life, like what that means, because I grew up hearing that and I was like, cool, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think a thing that has, has reemerged, and I, I think maybe it, it originates in the 1970s, but it's, people are talking about it of late, and, and basically the critique is that for, for a long time now, Christians, when they say sanctity of life or pro-life, it essentially means that we advocate for the unborn, which is good and true, but uh, the, the language or the phrase that's come back is womb to tomb, that Christians can be, to be truly pro-life is to be pro-life from womb to tomb, from, from beginning to, to end of life, and so I think that that just balances it out. It doesn't mean that we fight any less for the lives of the unborn, but it actually means that we, we care deeply about end-of-life issues, about, um, you know, uh, 
uh, palliative care and about how we how we treat even o older folks uh, with dignity, right? And not just kind of sequester them off away, out of mind, out of sight, so we're not faced with our own demise, that sort of thing. So what does it mean to be advocates for people at every uh, phase and stage of life? Um, yeah. Awesome. And tribe. Uh, people in the other tribe have or have dignity. Right, and of course all of this is rooted in the fact that we are created, not just a random collection of atoms and, and stuff that's evolved um, in some random way, and that we are also not just created, but created in the image of God. And so the Imago Dei is really, really essential to this idea that life has sanctity in and of itself. And so that's why we would uh, fight for and, and always be very, very... Um, uh, uh, staunchly against anything that would, would marginalize human life in any stage uh, from cradle to grave. Awesome. Or even unborn. Um, uh, let's see. What are Charleston-specific justice issues you want the cathedral to be known for engaging? We got a several questions about racial reconciliation. Of course, obviously, that's huge in the city where the majority of uh, African slaves came through. But what are, like today in 2019, leading into 2020, what do you hope people in Charleston would know the cathedral for being engaged in? Yeah, well, I think that they've got to be related. So racial in, uh, uh, reconciliation is, is also related to just disparities in general. Um, and so if we could be known for engaging where there are major disparities that are almost exclusively in our city related to race and poverty, and poverty is always down racial lines in the South, that's almost exclusively the way it is. And so um, how we might be um, engaged in, in things related to housing or related to schools and you know, all of that um, in a way that is, again, based in the sanctity of life. Like all of these individuals are, 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 are precious in the sight of God and we need to um, act in such a way that we would uh, see that and even be willing to sacrifice uh, some of our own comfort and our own privilege um, in order to see that um, uh, improved and have more parity and less disparity. Yeah, awesome. So we don't have time to really uh, engage in any more uh, super intense questions, unfortunately. And there are, and please as well, please continue texting these in because what we're going to do after this is the ones we didn't get to today. I'm going to send them to this panel and to some others, and we're going to try to like have just like a resource so we can begin thinking about these uh, these questions as a community. So I apologize for the ones, but one of them uh, that I thought was kind of a common theme was. Um, specifically with regard to our finances. Um, how do we be wise and just in preparing for the future while also investing in justice for the here and now? Um. <laughs> it was all the kids who just graduated from college. <laughs> Don't go into historic preservation. Oof. What's, what's her question? So how should we use our finances for one, like preparing personally for like the future, but also investing like in for justice like right now? Like what do we owe to our neighbors as far as uh, generosity of as far as like, so where does like uh, kingdom like generosity and like financial planning, <laughs> how does that like, how does that mesh up? Oh man. Can it? Find a spouse like Amy Lambert, who is, oh man. Her ability to save and be generous has been um, incredibly, that's been 
one of the most liberating things about my life and her ability to um, live differently. But we're also, we live, we, we're weird. We still have, um, we still, we have burners. We don't have flip phones. I have some street cred with my students. It's called a burner. But, um, you know, we, she does not. Yeah, I, I, it's it's difficult. How do we? How can we help? Um, how can we help people that are not um, as secure? And the first, we need to start recognizing people who aren't secure. We need to start looking for them. I part of our um, part of Amy's commitment to her students has been um, following up. She keeps in touch, and like we've been to their homes, and um, that's um, it's it's not easy. It's hard to it's hard to plan and to have that level of security and comfort, as we said earlier, while seeing so many people who don't. Um, yeah, I, I, I've said this multiple times, but um, I, I'm reading, almost done with Michael Rhodes' book, um, this Practicing the King's Economy, which does have a, re a lot of really practical things. I can't commit it enough. But one thing that he said, I, I, don't, I haven't read it in his book, but he said when, when we, did, we did a little lunch gathering with him, and I thought this was pretty revolutionary, and I'm still grappling with it, but one thing he says that he is trying to enact in their community is radical transparency with, with their friend group of, hey, here's what we make, like being very honest. It is, and it, it is really challenging to me, but I'm like, man, actually, that may be a real kingdom value to share that with people. Like, hey, here's how much our family makes. Here's how much it takes to live our life based on kind of our expenses and our season, you know, and, and get feedback. Like, does that seem right? Are we spending way too much on eating out? Are we wasting money on, you know, frivolous things? And then he, here's how much we're giving. We're only giving, you know, 7%, and, and, and that's probably not okay. Could we, how can we, you know, give more? And so actually, like, beginning to practice some real transparency. I mean, that would have to be uh, very intentional and you'd have to be, you know, people that you're already close with. So a small group, community group, Bible study. But that's something that, I, that Meg and I've been talking about. How can we be more transparent and, and, and open feedback from other people that are both younger and older and maybe different from us? And because I'm, I'm, I guarantee you that we can give more. You know, C.S. Lewis has that quote, but basically if you're not, if there's, if, if it's not painful, then you're not giving enough. If there's not something you have to say no to yourself for, then you're not giving enough. And I would venture to say myself and probably most of us in this room do pretty much everything we want to do. So that means we could probably all give more. So, anyway. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for your texts and questions. I'll go back. And if you have any more that we, you would like us to discuss as like a staff and to begin wrestling with as a community, please text those in. Um, would one of you please pray for us? It's Christ the King Sunday, so it's, it's, a, it's a good good Sunday to be talking about these things. Mighty Lord, we thank you for um, we thank you for your justice. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you um, you didn't view us as somebody to be written off in the other tribe. That even though we were in the other tribe, you came after us and you loved us and you um, you told us of your goodness and your mercy and you showed us how to exhibit that to other people. Give us opportunities. Throw people into our lives that need your justice and uh, that need your 
your gospel. They need to hear about your incarnation and your incredible, your incredible love and your, your way out of injustice. And we ask you to uh, embolden us, give us the words, give us um, the finances, give us the opportunities to help our neighbors. We thank you for where we are here in Midtown, and we ask that you continue to continue to bring us those needs and make us deeper and deeper disciples who know your word and know just how just how just and merciful you are and exhibit that to the people you bring us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.